about 200 or so years before becoming the biggest land empire in history. 70 years before the US got its independence and 85 years before the French Revolution, a new country was created. Not one by war or revolution, but actually some kind of crafty evolution. That year was 1707. The Acts of Union were two Acts of Parliament. The Union with Scotland Act, 1706, passed by the Parliament of England, and the Union with England Act, passed in 1707 by the Parliament of Scotland. They entered into force the terms of the Treaty of Union that had been agreed on the 22nd of July, 1706, following negotiations between the parliaments of the two countries. By these two acts, the Kingdom of England and the Kingdom of Scotland, which at that time were actually two separate states and countries with separate legislatures, but had the same monarch in the form of Queen Anne, in the words of that treaty, were united into one kingdom by the name of Great Britain. First, I want to look at some naming conventions, because unless you've spent time in the UK, it gets downright confusing. England is a country. Scotland is a country. Wales is a country. Northern Ireland is a semi-country. The Republic of Ireland is a country and 100% not in the United Kingdom, but it is in the European Union. So, in the UK, you have the countries of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. They all have their own flags. There are a bunch of smaller islands, like the Isle of Man, Jersey, and Guernsey, that come under the UK, and there are some tax-exempt reasons to live there. Plus, they do have some legislative freedoms. Great Britain is the main island of the British Isles. It consists of England, Scotland, and Wales. The island of Ireland is the second biggest. It consists of Northern Ireland and the Republic. In 1707, when the United Kingdom was formed, there was actually no Republic of Ireland. The Greco-Egyptian scientist Ptolemy referred to the larger island as Great Britain and to Ireland actually as Little Britain. Albion was a term used for the island in the era right before the Roman conquest. The name Albion appears to have fallen out of use sometime after the Roman conquest of Britain, after which Britain became the more commonplace name for the island. After the Anglo-Saxon period, Britain was used as a historical term only, but not as a political term. Later, the island of Great Britain as Britannia Major, i.e. Greater Britain, was used to distinguish it from Britannia Minor, i.e. Lesser Britain, that being the continental region which approximately today is the modern French region of Brittany, which, by the way, had been settled in the 5th and 6th centuries by Celtic migrants from the British Isles. The term Great Britain was first used officially in 1474, in the instrument drawing up the proposal for a marriage between Cecily, daughter of Edward IV of England, 
and James, son of James III of Scotland, which described it as this noble isle, call it Great Brittany. While promoting possible royal match in 1548, the Lord Protector Somerset said that the English and Scots were like as a two brethren of one island of Great Brittany again. But hang on a second, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. As a quick overview, before the Romans showed up in 43 AD, the Britons were, according to the Romans, not according to me, according to the Romans, the Britons were a bunch of savages, barbarians. They needed to be civilized and pacified. Prior to the Roman conquest, Britain was home to about 30 indigenous tribes. That included tribes like the Bellage and the Iceni. Historian Edward Gibbon believed that Spain, Gaul and Britain were populated by the same hardy race of savages, his word, not mine, based on the similarity of their manners and languages. The Romans proceeded to do what they did best, invasion. They took over what is mostly England today, but stopped short of taking Cornwall. They also failed to see the point into going into Wales and into Scotland. The Emperor Hadrian famously built Hadrian's Wall in the northern reach of the empire to keep the barbarians in check. The Romans were there for 400 years. That is a long time. After the Romans left in the early 400s AD, there was an invasion of sorts, not of an empire, but of tribes of Germanic Anglo-Saxon settlers. This ended up pushing the original Bretons into places like Cornwall, Wales, and border regions between what is present-day England and Scotland. Most of the regions settled by the Anglo-Saxons became unified as the Kingdom of England in the 10th century. Meanwhile, Gaelic speakers in northwest Britain, who had connections to Northeast Ireland and traditionally supposed to have migrated from there in the 5th century anyway, became united with the Picts who were up north in Scotland to create the Kingdom of Scotland by the 9th century. In 1066, the Normans and their Breton allies invaded England from northern France. After conquering England, they seized large parts of Wales, conquered much of Ireland, and were invited to settle into Scotland, bringing each country feudalism on the northern French model and Norman French culture and language. The Anglo-Norman ruling class influenced but eventually assimilated with each of the local cultures. Medieval English kings completed the conquest of Wales and made unsuccessful attempts to annex Scotland that remained devoutly independent. The English monarchs, through the inheritance of substantial territories in France and cleaves to the French crown, yes, the French crown, were also heavily involved in conflicts within France. The most notable of these was the Hundred Years' War, which I've spoken about before. While the kings of the Scots were in alliance with the French during this entire time, early modern Britain saw religious conflict resulting from the Reformation and the introduction of Protestant state churches in each country. Wales was fully incorporated in the Kingdom of England, and Ireland was constituted as a kingdom in personal union with the English crown. 
in what was to become Northern Ireland, the lands of the independent Catholic Gaelic nobility were confiscated and given to Protestant settlers from England and Scotland. This takes us all the way to 1603, when Elizabeth I of England died without children. Next in line to the throne appeared to be James VI of Scotland, who assumed the English crown in addition to his Scottish one as James I of England and James VI of Scotland. James moved his court from Edinburgh to London. Each country still remained a separate political entity and retained their separate political, legal and religious institutions. They just happened to have the same monarch. In 1604, James VI and I styled himself King of Great Britain, France and Ireland. Importantly, the Church of Scotland, or Kirk as it was known, was Calvinist in its doctrine, and it viewed many Church of England practices as a little better than Catholicism. As a result, attempts to impose religious policy by James and his son Charles I led to the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, or the British Civil War, or the English Civil War, take your pick. Through previous attempts at uniting the two kingdoms within Great Britain in 1606, 1667 and 1689 had proved successful, the attempted initiation in 1705 ultimately led to the Treaty of Union of 1706 being agreed and ratified by both parliaments. This Act of Union, or Acts of Union, the Acts ultimately took effect on 1st of May 1707. On this date, the Scottish Parliament and the English Parliament united to form the Parliament of Great Britain, based at the Palace of Westminster in London, the home of the English Parliament. The monarch of the time was Queen Anne, who was the last reigning monarch of the Stuart dynasty. The English succession of the monarch was provided for by the English Act of Settlement 1701, which ensured that the monarch of England would always be a Protestant member of the House of Hanover. Until the Union of Parliaments, the Scottish throne might be inherited by a different successor after Queen Anne, who had said in her first speech to the English Parliament that a union was very necessary. The Scottish Act of Security, 1704, however, was passed after the English Parliament without consultation with Scotland, and designated electress Sophie of Hanover, granddaughter of James I, as Anne's successor if she died childless. You see, deeper political integration had been a key policy of Queen Anne from the time she became queen in 1702. It was partly under her insistence that the parliaments of England and Scotland agreed to participate in fresh negotiations for a union treaty in 1705. Negotiations between the English and Scottish commissioners took place between 16th of April and the 22nd of July 1706 at the cockpit in London. Each side had its own concerns. Within a few days and with only one face-to-face meeting, all 62 commissioners in England had gained a guarantee that the Hanoverian dynasty would succeed Queen Anne to the Scottish crown and Scotland received a guarantee of access to colonial markets in the hope that they would be placed on equal footing in terms of trade. Since the 12th century, the King of England had been technical overlord of the Lordship of Ireland, a papal possession at the time. Both the kingdoms of Ireland and England later became 
a personal union with that of Scotland upon the union of the Crowns in 1603. The Acts of Union of 1800, however, were parallel acts of the Parliaments of Great Britain and the Parliament of Ireland, which united the Kingdom of Great Britain and the Kingdom of Ireland. These acts would come into force on the 1st of January 1801, and the merged Parliament of the United Kingdom had its first meeting on the 22nd of January 1801. The Union flag created because of the Union of the Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland in 1800 remains the flag of the United Kingdom today. It's called the Union Flag or the Union Jack. It combines the flags of St. George's Cross, that includes Wales by the way, St. Andrew's for Scotland and St. Patrick's to represent Ireland, though now that represents Northern Ireland. At the same time, there, by then, fanciful English claims to the French throne were given up. Moving forward, the 1921 Anglo-Irish Treaty was an agreement between the government of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and representatives of the Irish Republic that included the Irish War of Independence. It provided for the establishment of the Irish Free State within a year as a self-governing dominion within the community of nations known as the British Empire a status the same as that of the Dominion of Canada, it was thought at the time. It also provided Northern Ireland, which had been created by the Government of Ireland Act 1920, an option to opt out of the Irish Free State, which it did. This settlement was based on the reality that Northern Ireland was mostly Protestant and the Republic was mostly Catholic. That agreement was signed in London on the 6th of December 1921, by representatives of the British government, which included Prime Minister David Lord George, who was head of the British delegates, and by representatives of the Irish Republic, including Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith. So, what were the Articles of Union of 1707? Let's break it down. Article 1 states that the two kingdoms of Scotland and England shall upon the 1st of May next ensuing the date thereof and forever after be united into one kingdom by the name of Great Britain. Article 2 provided for the succession of the House of Hanover and for Protestant succession as set out in the English Act of Settlement of 1701. Article 3 provided for the creation of one unified Parliament of Great Britain. Article 4 gave the subjects of Great Britain freedom of trade and navigation within the kingdom and the dominions and plantations thereunto belonging, meaning what were then the English overseas possessions. Articles 5 to 15, 17 and 18 dealt with aspects of trade, movement, taxes, regulation, other matters to ensure equal treatment for all subjects of the new kingdom. Article 16 required the introduction of a common currency for Great Britain subsequently effected through the Scottish recoinage of 1707 to 1710. Article 19 was provision of the continuation of Scotland's separate legal system. Article 20 provided for the protection after the union of a number of heritable offices, superiorities, heritable jurisdictions, offices for life and jurisdictions for life. Article 21 provided for the protection of the rights of the royal boroughs. Article 22 provided for Scotland to be represented in the new Parliament of Great Britain by 16 of its peers and 45 members of the House of Commons. 
Article 23 provided for Scotland's peers to have the same rights as English peers in any trial of peers. Article 24 provided for the creation of a new Great Seal of Great Britain, different from those of England and Scotland, but it also provided for that Great Seal of England to be used until it had been created. And Article 25 provided that all laws of either kingdom that may be inconsistent with the articles in the treaty were declared void. Aside from these factors, we had some important geopolitical events that could not be ignored. 1. God. 2. Glory. God, because the general consensus agreed upon was that the monarch must be Protestant. Now, if you're listening to this in 2021, 2022 or later, you would think, who cares about this nonsense? Well, back then, clearly they did. They did a lot. And certainly a lot more than I certainly would think. The Glorious Revolution of November 1688 was the disposition of James II of England, same guy as James VII of Scotland, King of England and Scotland and Ireland, and was replaced by his daughter Mary II and her husband William III of Orange. Despite his Catholicism, James became king in February 1685 with widespread support. However, over the next three years, he alienated his supporters by suspending the Scottish-English parliaments in 1685 and ruling by personal decree. Despite this, it was considered a short-term issue as James was 52 and since his second marriage was childless after 11 years. The heir was his Protestant daughter, Mary. Two events in June 1688 turned dissent into a political crisis. First was the birth of James Francis Edward on the 10th of June displacing Mary as heir, which created a prospect of a Catholic dynasty. The second was the prosecution of seven bishops on the 15th of June, one in a series of perceived assaults on the Church of England, their acquittal on the 30th sparked anti-Catholic riots and destroyed James's political authority. The combination convinced a broad coalition of English politicians to issue an invitation to William, inviting him to secure the English throne for his wife Mary. So the English Parliament reached out to William, who was Dutch, and his wife, of course, was Mary, but Dutch nevertheless. Then there was the issue of Louis XIV over there in France, who was preparing to attack the Dutch. William, therefore, viewed this as an opportunity to secure English resources for the Nine Years' War, which began in September 1688. On the 5th of November, he landed in Brixham in Torbay with 14,000 men. As he advanced on London, most of the 30,000-strong royal army joined him. James went into exile on the 23rd of December, and in April 1689, Parliament made William and Mary joint monarchs of England and Ireland. A separate but similar Scottish settlement was made in June. Indeed, Queen Anne would rather have a future German monarch in the form of Sophia of Hanover as her successor, who was Protestant, than her own kin, who were the Stuarts and British, just because they were Catholics. George of Hanover ultimately succeeded Anne as king, as he was Sophia's son, and ultimately outlived Sophia. All this to highlight the fact that God played a vital, vital, vital role in this decision. But then there was also glory because since the early 1600s, the English had set up a bunch of colonies in the Americas and elsewhere, 
and they controlled it tightly. The Scots were not in any decent economic shape at all, and any links to the English ecosystem would be a bounty. A combined England and Scotland would not have to worry about a border on the island of Great Britain, but would instead worry about scratching and taking over boundaries in Asia, the Americas, and Africa instead. Socially, economically, and politically, Queen Anne's Act of Union was the trump card that would propel a few islands off the coast of Europe into the biggest land empire since the Mongols. In addition, during the messy time of the Glorious Revolution and the Civil War, the French had consolidated power and had begun to create a unified nation under Louis XIV. The increasing power of France and the endless pursuit of glory was always something humans, then and now, craved for. The Act of Union provided a platform for that to happen in relative peace. This, of course, excludes the mess that was to happen on the island of Ireland in due time. A lot of what you think of as British started after this Act of Union. The first Prime Minister, increasing parliamentary power over the monarchy, the empire, the advance of, mer- the advance of mercantile capitalism, the growth of the British Navy, and so on. From 1707, other than what can be described as a minor hiccup in the 13 colonies, the development of the United Kingdom reached a peak around the 1920s when it ruled over 25% of the Earth's landmass and about the same amount of people inside the landmass. The riches from all this adventurism led to the UK becoming the richest country on the planet. Much of these riches and empire was snuffed rather quickly after two bloody world wars in the first half of the 1900s. Soon after the start of the Cold War in the 1940s, the UK diminished in power quickly, losing most possessions by the 1980s. Indeed, in 1973, the UK joined the EEC, i.e. a forerunner to the European Union, that, by the way, the UK in turn left in 2020. So the country of Great Britain is about 300 or so years old at the time of publishing this podcast. How many people, how many of you in what other parts of the world celebrate an Independence Day from these islands? India, the USA? Yes, they do. Who has their country modeled on the UK? Australia, Canada? Yes, they do. And by the way, I just cited four countries of many, many more. How many people speak the English language? How do you think so many people learn to speak it? Or what about capitalism and liberalism and even communism? Who do you think harbored these thinkers? It might not be fashionable to say it, but it is absolutely a fact. The union that created the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland was ultimately one of the most important and significant points in human history. It forced British culture, names, language, and so on onto about a quarter of the world's population. It's not just the English language. It's way more than that. It's culture. So much of law that was built within England and Scotland were ultimately exported to the far reaches of the planet. English common law is used not just in England, 
A version of it is used in multiple other countries. The British also pushed Greco-Roman culture and Protestant thought across its empire. Again, a cultural dimension. Ultimately, if you're listening to this podcast and you understand what on earth I'm talking about, the language, etc., you get it. You are part of that heritage, like it or not. Thank you once again for taking the time to listen to the Alternative History Podcast. Thank you so very much. <laughs>